Hi, folks. This is Patrick here. Uh, we have a very special guest on the podcast today. We have professional runner and Skechers athlete Brandon Hudgens. Uh, I first met Brandon last year uh, because we have a mutual connection. Uh, he He's a professional runner, and he trained with my old college roommate, Cameron Bean, who also became a professional runner. So Brandon's been a runner for, for 21 years or so. He has a lot of experience, and he's a very passionate runner and very passionate ambassador for the sport. He also has a very interesting story because in 2008, he was diagnosed with an autoimmune disorder called vasculitis. And then in 2015, after many rounds of treatment, he ran a sub four-minute mile. Um, And then in 2016, ran in the Olympic trials. So as you probably guessed, there's a lot that went on between the 2008 initial diagnosis and the the sub four in 2015 and the Olympic trials in 2016. So we just wanted to kind of have him on and have him share uh, some of the, the trials and tribulations he went through and, and some of the things that he's learned on his journey. So give it a listen. It's, it's a great podcast. He's a very engaging speaker and a very engaging personality. Uh, he also wrote a book called Going the Distance, which is available on Amazon, and I believe on Amazon Kindle. So so check it out. He's an interesting guy with an interesting story, and we, we highly recommend you look him up and, and listen to, to some of the words that he says on the podcast and, and read some of the words he wrote in the book. But before we get into the interview today, I do want to remind you, you can always reach George and I at george at itlcoaching.com and patrick at itlcoaching.com. And if you don't want to reach out to us individually, you can also send an email to pleasantpodcast at gmail.com. All right. Thanks for listening and hope you enjoy the interview. and welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm Patrick Ollinger, also an endurance coach and athlete here in Atlanta, Georgia. It is interview week once again, and we have with us Brandon Hudgens. What's up, guys? Welcome, man. We're glad you're here. Thank you all for having me. Excited. Absolutely. So to to give folks a, a bit of reference, we actually just got through running with the Cam Run 5K, the 2018 version. So it's the the third annual Cam Run 5K, and then we'll be running the mile a little bit later on tonight. Yeah, the Magnum Mile. Actually. That's, that's right. So for, for folks who maybe are listening and, and have never heard of the Cam Run 5K, it started uh, a few years ago. So we're in year number three, and it is a 5K that was started by Alan Otlaw in honor of Cameron being a runner here in the Chattanooga area. Who, uh, yeah, we're actually in Chattanooga. I said here in Atlanta, but we're actually coming from you from the Hilton Garden Inn in Chattanooga, Tennessee. That's Shout right. out to the Hilton. That's right. Hey, maybe that's our first podcast sponsor. Yeah. Right on. Um, but w- Hilton, it- if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Hilton. So anyways, back to the, the camp ride. So we started a few years ago uh, by Alan Otlaw in honor of Cameron Bean, who um, was my teammate in college and also trained with Brandon here um, yeah, yeah. for several years um, in, in Boone, North Carolina under, under Zap Fitness. And it was started because in 2015, Cameron was going for a run and was struck by a car so, and uh, subsequently died um, from the injuries. So this run was started at kind of in memory of him, um, and then we're going to run a, a mile tonight, kind of, we call it the Magnum Mile. I'm not really sure where they got the name from. Well, Magnum, of course, was Cameron's self-imposed nickname. Yes, I knew that. His his self-given nickname. So to kind of give you some background, he literally graduated (laughs) from college, and when he went up to accept the award, he actually introduced himself as Magnum to the president of the university. That's... That's Cameron. Yeah, I mean, that's, very much shows his personality. Yeah, or Cron City, as we called him. Cameron, Cron City, Magnum Bean. Yeah, um, he was a man of many, many names. Um, 
And he also gave everybody that he ever met a pretty much a nickname too. Correct. He, so. he sure did. Um, so Luckily, he, I already had one, and I, I, you know, I already had one in place, but it didn't stop him from giving you a new one. Yeah, add, adding on to it. What, it. what was your nickname? Well, I always kind of went by B Hudge, and then and uh, at when I was at Appalachian State, I picked up B Hudge Nasty. Yeah, and well, yeah, you did. He, yeah, and so uh, from there, he, you know, it was B Sludge, and uh, <laughs> you know, he. It's a real flattering name for a runner. <laughs> yeah, there was there was a lot of other ones that we just kind of will leave off air. Um, but yeah, he he ran with it. I mean, it was his, his his kind of thing. I mean, we all like before I met you, I knew you, I knew you by your, uh-huh. I knew you, <laughs> the infamous P money. Like yeah, so P money, P money, yeah, P money. I can't believe I'm just now finding that out. Yeah, we've been recording this he's, podcast he's, he's, for almost a year. He's P money in my phone, like. Like yeah, I got his number. I put him in there as P Money. Like, oh, very nice. I had to. It, it, but it, Cameron also would get boy with nicknames. So it was P Money, then it was P Money, P Diddy, then it was P Money Party Daddy. Like, yeah. It was just like a long slew of names from college. Yeah, he, so. he was just always just it. It was the type guy he was. Right on, right on. I should I should also mention for those of you who are in the the multi sport community, you probably remember that that Steve Bean, who is Cameron's dad, who I met this morning. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, he was signed up for uh, Ironman Chattanooga, inaugural Ironman Chattanooga, the very first time. Yes. Um, and and when Cameron was was run over and killed, it was about two weeks before that race. I want to say, isn't that right? That's right. Yes. The yeah. and the race, the the actual Ironman was the day after the funeral. Yeah, yeah. If my and, memory and, serves. And Steve Bean did the race. He did the race. Yeah. Uh, he I, I is still one of the. You know, we've all anybody that's been involved in endurance sports, like you've seen, like just some incredible efforts, whether they be you know like Olympic caliber events or you know world class times, and you see people also that you know that have been through a lot or just to get to the starting line and stuff, and you know that are kind of heroes of their own story. And what Steve Bean did, I, I think, was a, a hero for a, a, a lot of us. I you know, I pride myself on being a pretty good athlete, you know, <laughs> but I. I, I I know I was exhausted emotionally, um, yeah. and I couldn't have run a five k. And I don't know how Steve Bean did a full full Ironman right. like he did. I mean, it's still it's still one of the most amazing feats that I've I've ever like emotionally been involved in. It's it's he's a he's a savage. <laughs> he's <Yeah>. a savage. <laughs> and it was his first ever race. I mean, he had, he I, mean, I think he had done a few five k's before. Yeah, and, and that I, was about it. Yeah, but you know, he wanted to do it. Cameron had set up the whole training plan for yeah. him, um, and had been there because Cameron had moved back to Chattanooga a couple of months before that, and had really been on like on him in his grill, like making sure that he was doing everything he needed to do. Um, and you know, Steve felt like he would still like Cameron would have wanted him to do it, which I, you know, we know Cameron and Cameron would have wanted him to do it. Like you don't quit that far into. A, you know, you've put in all the preparation the last two weeks, you're kind of, you know, tapering, um, and trying to get ready to emotionally handle that race and what's going to come. But, you know, Steve obviously had put in all that work and you can't just, he wasn't going to let his boy down. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And to your point, and we're, we're getting heavy quick, but, um, <laughs> like swinging for the fence. Already. Yeah. Um, but I, I can tell you, so it's kind of i mean he was so he was struck while he was running yes and i mean so on the road that we all ran on this morning yeah on the road we all ran on this morning and i can tell you so i he was my roommate in college and so like i remember we would always 
uh, like leave our shoes at the door, wake up, put on our shoes, go for a run. You know, every, just every morning is what you do in college. Um, and so I remember when I found out the news and, and kind of how it happened, it was weeks before I could even look at a pair of running shoes. I mean, it was a pretty, like, I don't know how Steve went for, went for not just a run, but completed a, yeah. Was it, was it a half Ironman? Um, full, full, full Ironman, full Ironman. Iron Iron excuse me, I should give him full credit here. But I still look back at that and just don't know how he continued to, to persevere and keep putting one foot in front of the other. Yeah, that's what I said. Like, I, you know, I, I luckily was on a break at the end of my season when it happened, and I, I didn't have the, the emotional energy to go for a run for it was it was a couple of weeks there yeah it was tough it was really really tough because you're also for for me i was in the spot in boone i was in the places that we trained every day and so everywhere you go there's memories yeah you know Mm -hmm. there's memories of the things that you did together and um you're thinking about things so it was it was tough i mean me and my other best friend who was um teammates with uh Cameron is at fitness, Chris Mullen. Uh, he and I had gone to Appalachia state together and, you know, the three of us were kind of like three peas in a pod up there. And, you know, Boone was the day that he passed away was crying. The, I, yeah. It was, it was a dreary, cloudy, cold, rainy day in September. And like when it happened out, you know, and like, it's just, it's like the, the mountains cried for a couple of days. <laughs> like yeah. I'm, I'm full, like, you know, and I'm not an overly superstitious or, or, or religious type person that, that, that would believe in a lot of that, but there's some things I think sometimes that just happen that are just kind of meant to be. And that was yeah. one of those. I still remember what it looks like that day. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I, I still remember where I was, what chair I was sitting in Oh yeah, when I got the call. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty devastating. And I'll tell you too, um, so at that time, that was right before I joined the, the ITL group, which is the group I run with and coach with now. Okay. But I can tell you too, so it happened. And like I said, it was weeks where I couldn't even look at my run. I literally put it yeah. in the closet and was like, I can't look at this stuff right yeah. now. And then I was like, okay, this is something I love. I don't want to lose it forever. And that was when a friend from high school reached out and said, hey, you should come join us at the track Tuesday mornings and run with us. And I remember thinking, this is the only way I can get back into this because yeah. then I have to show up and see people. And I remember the first few weeks I was very quiet because I couldn't talk to people. I was just very like, I just want to be here and start to kind of thaw myself out. Yeah, again. I just want to go through the motions of this and get to like by myself, like go through the motions, right. go through the emotion of this and mm-hmm. just kind of, you know, start, start life without him, you know? Yeah. And it's, 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 you know, we, we talk about, you know, starting off heavy, but yeah. I mean, when, <laughs> when, when you, when you go through something like this, it's amazing too how it's a process. I mean, I, I feel like I was almost like cleaning out my emotional closet and kind of going through the memories and kind of, you know, having to look back through what happened and kind of yeah what he meant to me and, and kind of what that group meant to me that, you know, college teammates and, and how, and really kind of reflect on what running has meant to me in my life. And as I came of age of, as a person. Yeah, I, I tell people that a lot. Um, you know, like I've I've been through, a, I've lost several friends over the years, unfortunately. Yeah. And um, it's it's a process, and mm-hmm. going through it and having been through it multiple times never makes it any easier. No. And but you understand the of like what's gonna you you, you know what's gonna happen, mm-hmm. and I, I I certainly by the time Cameron passed away, I had. I had been through that process and that grieving process numerous times and I knew what was coming yeah. with all of it and how, you know, how I sort of handled it, but it, it, it never goes away. You know, 
other things in life happen, but the, the emotions are, are still raw. You know, I, I've been here in Chattanooga, uh, for since Thursday evening and you know, there's been a lot of laughing, some crying. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been about how it was, you know, we're, we're, we're almost, we're a month away from three, basically from three, th- three years. And it's still, uh, you know, it still chokes me up a lot. It still, he still makes me laugh a lot. Yeah. Um, he, so it's, you know, it's, it, it's a process and, and every, you know, it's part of life. Unfortunately, losing people is, is, is part of everybody's life. And I think it's something that, uh, a story that a lot of people have related to. And I mean, at his funeral, we just saw the impact that he had as a person on a lot of other people's lives. I mean, there was, they filled the church there at Baylor and it was, you know, probably mm-hmm. a couple of thousand people and I'm not trying to exaggerate or blow it up, but it no. was standing room only yeah. <laughs> at his funeral. Um, because he touched, he, and he had those, the type of relationships that he had with you and I, with a lot of other people. Um, and you know, he shared himself with the world. And I, I think that's why like this 5k and, and naming the mile, the Magna mile is, is yeah. like, it's, it's what he would want. And, you know, I, I remind his parents of that all the time. And some of his other friends that are involved with putting on the race and they kind of run stuff by me. Sometimes I'm like, you have to remember, he would want this to be the biggest party that it could possibly be. And don't yeah. ever lose sight of that. Yeah. Um, that's what he would want. And so I, you know, I feel like we've, we've gone a little bigger every you know, every year the turnout's been really consistent and, you know, it's, it's exciting to see the people that do come out and, and, you know, the first year was obviously the overwhelming majority of people had some sort of relationship with him and, Mm -hmm. or knew him or seen him or or something. Um, but now we're starting to get to the point now, three years in where there's people that are coming that never knew who he was. And, uh, it's our job and our responsibility is as the event grows and the the event gets bigger and, and hopefully turns into something that's, that's even bigger than Cameron himself, you know, that, you know, he's still an integral part of the, of that race, but he would want it to be as big as it could possibly be. And, uh, for us all to just have fun. And I, I, I think, I know I certainly had a blast this morning. Um, and it's just, the, the, there should be a lot of fun and a lot of celebrating around the event. And it's, it's, it, that's how we need to remember the people that, that we loved and the people that we cared about. Um, mm-hmm. because if, if, if you're crying over the grief of losing them, that means they made you happy in life. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, we, we well, I think we all need to honor that instead of just just thinking about how sad it is that that person's not here anymore. Right, and and you made a good point too that I definitely noticed this morning how many more people there were. Yeah, and I think it's you you hit the nail right on the head. It's because the first year, it was okay. Who knew him directly? Right. Yeah. Who were his roommates? Who were people who ran with him? That kind of thing. Yeah. But then as you know, we bring people into our own lives. They start to see, hey, this means something to Patrick. Or this means something to Brandon. So we want to be there too. Yeah. And so it's it's very interesting to see. It's it's a very um, kind of interesting race because it it is in a way part funeral. That's not, not the right <laughs> word, but you you know it is people gr- kind of grieving and coming together. And we have this kind of um, connection. Like I did not know you before this race no a few yeah. years ago yeah um and that's actually how we met is i just introduced myself and i said hey i'm patrick and then yeah. you were like oh yeah yeah p money I, yeah. <laughs> I know you yeah, what's, what's your nickname yeah. <laughs> yeah. well i like he was like oh i was he was like i'm patrick i was cameron's room i was like oh you're p money yeah. like i knew who p money was because of the stories and you know but that's the thing is, is like you you knew like in the running community and most endurance sports the communities are, are really really small there's only 
you know, in life they say that you're three degrees of separation away from, you know, anybody in the world or whatever, or a celebrity. And yeah, like Kevin and, Bacon specifically. Yeah. Kevin Bacon specifically, I think is the, uh, he's a linchpin of the entire yeah, race. So, but in the running and the most endurance sports, like within their, their, their subsets, like, you know, you're, it's one degree of separation. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you know, somebody like you, you know, somebody, you know, mm-hmm. and it's, it, it's, I think it provides for that, that tight knit community that we all have within these things and how you can come to an event like this. And it's, it's like, while there might be some like moments of like tension and, and real sport where people are going at it in a race, um, there's a lot of, a lot of love and camaraderie with each other, you know, it's, and that happens wherever I go. Like most of the people that I spend the vast majority of the year racing weekend, week out, like we're all friends, yeah. you know, we hang out for, for the entire weekend basically of the race, except for like the four minutes that we're racing and we right. want to beat each other's heads apart. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you're, unless there was some kind of squabble during the race, you know, then there's, you're pretty much friends again immediately after after the race is over unless there's a squabble and then you're mad for like a minute (laughs) (laughs) yeah there's really not rivalries in running yeah i mean it's like to some extent there are like i i have certainly have people that i love to love to race and love to beat um that's ultimately why i still run i love the uh i love the sensation of beating people and um like breaking a person when you break somebody it's just still so I don't know. It feels really good <laughs> to, to like break another person and push. Like you think about like what it is when you're beating somebody, when you're running or cycling or swimming, and you've pushed somebody past their physical and psychological limits. It's, it's kind of empowering and it's, you know, it's what competition is. And I, 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 th- I still get an extreme amount of pleasure out of, out of competing, which is why I still want to do it. Um, and you know, I, it's what's kept me going for the, I I'm joking. My, my running career is going to turn 21, in uh, September. So my running career will be of legal drinking age this year. Um, so, you know, that's two thirds of my life, 31 years old. And my running career is 21 and there has to be something that is sustained this whole time. Um, and so some of that is competing, but a lot of that is, is also, it's not just like sheer competition. It's just love for your fellow competitors and respect for your fellow competitors because we're kind of all in it together. Right on. Right on. Go ahead. I was like, you actually transitioned just nicely to, to kind of our one of our first points. That's there. what I was going to say. Yeah. I, I said that. Um, up, I said that up perfectly. Actually, yeah, you really yeah, did. So, so no, we'll, we'll mention this again at the end. But Brandon actually has a podcast of his own, so it, you, you could probably pick up on that. That he he, he gave us that softball transition. Yeah. yeah, very nice. Thank you, sir. I, I didn't plan that. <laughs> it just happened. Uh, right on. So, well, let's 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 take it back then to 21 years ago when you were first okay. beginning to run. How'd you get into it? Did you do other sports or? or yeah, what? I played a lot of other sports. Um, soccer. I tried baseball, but that was boring. Uh, as you can imagine for somebody that Still likes is. to run. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, it's boring. Um, but believe it or not, I grew up actually wanting to be a football player and yeah. at five eleven, 140 pounds. Uh, I don't think professional football was in the cards for me. Patrick wanted that too, but he didn't have nearly your size. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my bad P money wanted that P money, P money. But, but, Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, so I no, like I I started running when I was ten. Um, there was a uh, USA, it was either USATF or AAU cross country meet for for I can't remember which one it was now, but um, it uh, a cross country course is right near my house. Actually, at Winthrop University, where I would later go on to school for a bit. 
Um, and that's in South Carolina. That's correct? in South Cackalacka. Rock Hill, South Carolina is where I, where I grew up, just below Charlotte, for anybody that's familiar with I-77. Uh, we're basically a suburb of Charlotte. We're just having to be across the state line. But anyways, um, I my dad was actually a f- the football coach and track coach at my high school and had played s- like small college football and uh, had friends that were football players. And um, I got – I, I was kind of involved in that world growing up. I grew up with Joe Montana and Dwight Clark and Jerry Rice and Steve Young and Ronnie Lott and George. Those are all San Francisco no, 49ers. Yeah. I players. know who those okay. people are. <laughs> yeah, but, but but that's that's like because because I grew up watching football as a little kid. Yeah, but I couldn't name any more current football players. Yeah. Anyway, keep going. Yeah, I'm kind of getting that way. I'm, um, and uh, actually, I went to I got to go to the Atlanta Falcons San Francisco game on Christmas Eve when I was in third grade. Actually, nice. um, my dad's best friend was Dwight Clark growing up, who played oh. for the San Francisco 49ers. Oh, gosh. If you're not aware of who Dwight Clark is, the he catch. caught the catch mm-hmm. that propelled San Francisco yeah. to the yeah. Super Bowl over Dallas. <laughs> um, so Jeez. I grew up, and then in my town too, Rock Hill is now known as kind of like professional football. You like we. We have, I think, from my town and county there, 11 people in the NFL right now. Wow. Right. So I grew up, like one of my best friends was growing up, his, his, his older brother got drafted by the, like, the Patriots, played at Georgia, Ben Watson. Like, oh, yeah, we know Ben Watson. Yeah, so like, you know, Ben's had an 11-year, 12-year NFL career. Um, Jonathan Joseph was on the track team with me, and he's, he's been with the Texans for a long time now. Like Cordell Patterson, like this um, – you know, there's all these guys that I just grew up around, and I thought most people's towns were like this, where you just had these <laughs> giant humans that were super athletic, and that's the world I wanted to be in. And my neighbor, like I'd had, like running was never on the radar for me, mm-hmm. and like we hung out at track practice with dad, but like it was mainly because we he didn't let us go to football practice because when you're 10 years old or nine years old, like the language that goes on at football practice, especially in our area, like football is God. And the, you know, the coaches certainly don't keep it PC out there for the kids. You know, it's my mind as well, especially at that time have been um, pretty, it's pretty hard knocks. So uh, we weren't really allowed to hang out around football practice too much. Um, (laughs) But, you know, we were in the stands every, every game, like playing with the other kids. Like it just was never on the radar. And, my neighbor got my, my neighbor who was my dad's assistant coach was also the club coach. And I was friends with his son and like, we need another person for our team to do this. Brandon would probably be pretty good at it. He's like, he hasn't trained. There's no way. Like, I'm not letting him do that. Like he's not gonna just do something. He hasn't. Right. But, and of course, um, and I, I, I was 10. I didn't know that I was like this, but, um, I started basically pitching hissy fits and throwing temper tantrums to be able to do it. It was like two or three weeks before the race. And, coach Tyson asked about it and he asked me of course and of course I went to dad and they were like you know you're not you don't practice you don't No, we're not going to just like you're not just going to go run and I was persistent and persistent and persistent and finally and I don't remember now if it was a week before the the weekend before the race I think it was was like a week or two before the race dad's like all right we're going to go over there to the course there's a mile lake over there you can run around and it was a 3K cross-country race. He's like, if you can figure out how to run around this big lake twice without stopping, I'll let you do it. Yeah, he thought he had you. He thought he had me. <laughs> 21 years later, I'm still running. <laughs> so, That's fantastic. Um, yeah, it, it was, it, you know, and, like, our team then qualified for, like, the USATF regional meet. 
And my dad's like, oh, no. Like, what? <laughs> so I had, like, another race in another two weeks or something. And so I actually did practice a couple of times then. And then we qualified for nationals. My dad's like, you're not going to Florida. You don't deserve this. You haven't earned this. Yeah. And, of course, I cried, I think, for like I like it's like even the type of thing like where you're like in bed and it's like Friday night when you're a kid and the race is on Saturday you're like I'm just gonna wake up and I'm gonna be in Orlando Florida with my friends like <laughs> you know I'm gonna be there it's like what's gonna happen like I know what's gonna happen and then of course you wake up in your own bed and you're just still crying and angry so um so yeah you know and I didn't take running super serious I played soccer and church league basketball and you know we were I was still kind of thinking about playing football and then um and in South Carolina in seventh grade, you can run cross country for the high school. And it kind of came up, uh, like if this is something you want to do, my dad discouraged me from doing it, um, because he knew it was going to require my mom to cart me back and forth to practices. And it was just going to be, you know, I'm one of three. I'm not the only, well, I try to act like the only child. Sometimes <laughs> I'm not the only child. So, um, it, he was just like, you know, it's going to put a strain on stuff, but you know, my mom's like, no, if he wants to do it, like we'll make it work. And so we made it work and cause I had to, I was, I, I was, he wouldn't let us play little league football because him having been a, a football coach, he's like, I'm not comfortable with these idiot dads just teaching you how to play football, mm-hmm. just running in each other. And you're like, no yeah. bull in the ring. And all. yeah. That like yeah. he's yeah. He's like, I'm not, I'm not subjecting you to that. You can play when like, I know who the coaches are at the middle school and they know what they're doing. Like, we're not just going to, you know, football's a dangerous sport as we're finding out more and more. Yeah. Um, so, um, I had a decision to make and I'd like to tell you right now that I remember what flipped the switch for me. Um, but I don't, I don't remember what it was. Um, like I do remember some like sitting in my room and like seeing the guys on the wall. It's like, well, if I go run now, like I'm probably not going to do this. And uh, I was just, I, I think I became okay with that thought. And, went out for the cross country team and, you know, I, I enjoyed being a part of the team and, um, you know, ran track and stuff. And for the, you know, I didn't start taking it. Like I wasn't running on the weekends and wasn't running when the team wasn't meeting until I was probably in 10th grade. So like I took it serious, but like when I was there, right. right? Like I, I still was, I still was a kid. And, um, you know, it wasn't until about my, probably my ninth grade year. I, well, I know when we made our four by eight team made uh, our four by 800 relay team made the state meet my freshman year. And I got to be part of that. And I really wanted to be a part of that. And I think if, if my memory is correct at all, which it's probably not, um, that's kind of when I really remember kind of getting really serious about it, like trying to figure out how I was going to get on and stay on that relay, you know, yeah. cause I was the weak link. I was the freshman kid. And like, so there was a yeah. lot of older guys and those people in the way. So I like, I could have very easily been, been bumped off. I don't remember how I managed to stay on it, but I, I did. Um, so I, I mean, I was the weak link. Like I could have been very easily replaced and, uh, I was not strictly on there because I was the coach's kid. Like I, you know, I, I, I earned my, my spot on that team. So, um, I think from then on, pretty much, I was pretty pretty serious about it. Sounds like your dad wouldn't have been okay with you only being on there for being the coach's kid anyway. No, and see, like, I grew up with a lot of the other coach's kids at my school. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a lot of us that were within a couple of years of each other, and one of them was a really, really good baseball player, and his dad was the baseball coach. And even though he went on to play college ball, he still had to hear crap about, 
you're only on the team because you're your dad. And it's like, I mean, he was a division one athlete. Like <laughs> it had nothing yeah. to do with it. It's like, you know, there's parents mad and you know, it, I had to listen to, and hear a lot of that from, from them at times. And you hear other people saying stuff and parents saying stuff. And it, luckily I was able to kind of always run fast enough. And I, like, that's the thing about running and track and field is like, anytime like there's a race, it's like cut and try pretty much, right, you know, right. it's there. Somebody's either faster than somebody or they're not, um, you know, occasionally on those relays or when you're picking cross country teams, you know, and you're looking at a whole season and body work, like you might have some people that are like, might have a higher upside, but they've also been like not as consistent. So then that's when it kind of gets a little tricky, but for the most part, it's pretty cut and dry. Like these are, you know, somebody's faster than the other person. So, uh, you know, I, I, I luckily never had, had to deal with any of that flack because I could just literally outrun them for the most part. So I think after my sophomore year, I was, or after my freshman year, like all those guys that graduated that year, I was pretty much the number one guy after that for the last couple of years of school. So that nobody's going to question whether I'm on the team then because of my dad. Right. Yeah. So, so, so when did it then become clear that, that this was going to be something you were going to be doing beyond high school and something where when I was 13, okay. Um, that, that summer after my ninth grade year, um, this guy named Alan Webb was pretty stud high school runner. Uh, I got to see him my eighth grade year. I got to see him race at a race down in South Carolina at Taco, the Taco Bell, uh, classic, which was a big meet in Columbia here in like four Oh three as a junior there. And I was like in eighth grade, not racing, uh, at that meet. And I just was like, Oh my God, what is, who is this guy? And then I saw him a couple of weeks later run 403 again in Charlotte uh, at a meet at UNCC that they had put together um, to try to help get him under four. It ended up not happening. Um, they had done that because, like, the number two kid in the country that year was from Boone, actually, Ricky Brookshire. And so they tried to cobble together for the get, to get the two of them under, and it ended up not happening. Um, and then my ni- after my ninth grade year um, in 2001, like – Alan Webb ran 353 in the mile. And I was, I'll still remember where I was sitting. I was at down at the beach with my family. The Prefontaine Classic came on TV. I made sure to get back in like uh, off the beach to, to watch the race. Cause it was a chance of him breaking four minutes uh, there. He'd already done it indoors, but you know, there was rumors that, that were floating around on the message boards back in 2001 when I started creeping on them. Uh, that he was in pretty 2000s message boards. That's a flashback. (laughs) Yeah. The original Twitter. I I was, yeah, I, I was an early adopter of let's run.com. Unfortunately. Uh, Me too. Yeah. So, you know, rumor had it, well, he was in pretty good shape. So, uh, the magic happened that day out at Hayward field, the Prefontaine classic. Um, and he ran three fifty three, set the high school, uh, national record. And I was like, that's what I want to do that's that was i had my joe montana moment with it at that point in time right on. um and i i mean i first dreamed about a sub four minute mile in 2001 and i had to wait 15 years for it so um or well yeah 14 years but yeah so it was yeah it was quite the, you know that's that's when it all really kind of started getting serious for me so and that's when i first started thinking about doing it in college um, cause it was a big deal. Webb was going to Michigan. And then a year later, like sub four, the book came out and that's kind of when I started really going off the deep end with the runner nerd stuff. <laughs> like I, I, I went hard in the paint for a while with that stuff. So, right. um, yeah, I, I was, I, I was a fanboy, 
and that's when I that's when I first started dreaming about it. And I just you know I obviously don't know the path that you're going to take and what that's actually going to be like and look like. But um, yeah, I mean, pretty much the whole time in high school, I was angling to run in college and stuff. And it sounds like you were always a miler. Yes and no. Um, I actually. I watched too much Prefontaine was like when I was a kid and I was like, when I started graduating, you mean the feature films Prefontaine? And yeah. Limits? And then like, I'd, I'd have seen fire on the track right. too. Fire on the track's great. Without limits. Great. Yeah. Prefontaine, not uh, so great. The movie's not so great. I do love Jared Leto. I kind of have a main crush on that guy. Uh, he's just one of those people that can kind of do everything. And, and that's like, probably where I started is watching him run as Steve Prefontaine and Prefontaine, right? Yeah. <laughs> um yeah because when I, I guess so yeah when i saw that i didn't know really i like i wasn't aware of his larger body of work mm-hmm. uh as an actor um i've become a huge fan of him an actor and i liked his band 30 seconds to mars and stuff and uh so yeah that's probably where it honestly started now thinking back about it because i don't think i was aware of his other like <laughs> like i wouldn't have been watching him shoot up heroin when like i was in like 13 yeah so like you know it's just like i wasn't like i wasn't watching like requiem for a dream and stuff when i was 13 so um <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it's like I became a fan of him as an actor later on. But yeah, I guess that's that was the the start that, of it. That was sitting in your unconscious. Yeah, I'm it really was. Um, anyway, I totally interrupted your really good story about. Oh you know, uh, no, I mean, I, I don't think we've ever had a, a Jared Leto digression on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion podcast. Well, I'm glad I can be the first. Right on, I have a couple of man crushes I could just go on and on about, but we'll. I do too. They just happen. Is, you know, there's is, just is certain Matt people. Damon one of yours? He, he, he's kind of up there. I, I'm definitely, okay, he's not one of mine. Just check. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I mean, he, he's just one of those guys. Like, you know, I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of, uh, and why did it just leave me? Uh-huh. Him and Robin Williams and, uh, Ben Affleck, Ben Affleck, uh, Good Will Hunting. Good Will Hunting. Well, I suppose, why can't I think of that? Yes, like, yeah, that's like one of my all time favorite movies, but and Matt Damon wrote it. Yeah, I know. The, well, hit, they uh, they joke. I heard an interview with uh, the two of them one time said, like, if Robin had not gotten a hold of that script and it ended up on his desk, that movie would have never been made. He's like, yeah, I, we would. He's heard. like, we never would have made it in Hollywood. He's like, I'd be forty and still trying to like pedal scripts around and trying out for From roles. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so good story and good endurance tie-in. Um, when when Lance Armstrong was was riding his first post-cancer Tour de France. Yeah. So 1999. Um, he crossed the finish line in a really consequential stage of the Tour de France, and, and he locked up the Tour de France, mm-hmm. right? And so he crosses the finish line, and he gets on his, his mic, he gets on his, his radio, and he says to his team directors on the other side of the radio, Johan Bernil, hey, do you like apples? And, <laughs> and Johan Bernil's like, yeah. And he goes, well, how do you like them? And he, he threw an expletive into it, yeah. which was not in the movie, but something that he borrowed actually from Goodwill Hunting. And so at the victory dinner at the Tour de France that year, they had apples on all of the tables. That is a very Lance Armstrong story. Right and, and to bring that back around, Robin came and hung out later. Years later, he came out and hang, hung he out. Did. Yeah, would come back You're and right. come out and hang out on the bus with, with Lance. He was a big fan. Yeah. Right on. Very so, good. Anyway, all right. So Yeah, I don't even know where we are now. <laughs> so so you, you watch Fire on the Track. You watch Free Fun. Yeah. You watch Without Lance. Oh, yeah. So I was trying – so, you know, I hadn't – like, I was okay in cross country. I was always a better on the track, but I, I just didn't really – quite understand all of that um and i thought that like i would go to college and and move up in distance and uh you know i had run fairly decent equivalent times on the track uh in high school of like 416 and 930 which were pretty good times 
like when I came out of school in 2005, um, they certainly weren't enough to garner like lots of attention. Um, you know, like I could have walked on at a really big school, but I wasn't going to get, you know, I was looking at like Winthrop where I ended up Clemson, UNC Charlotte, um, Georgia called late, but I'd already signed. Um, but like Clemson and basically you, by the way, Georgia did that back in the day. Yeah. They had a policy of not calling until after the cross country season was done. Yeah. Which for us runners were like, well, we kind of want to sign and know we have our yeah. money wrapped up. So yeah, they approached me in like, I think it was like March or April. And I was like, man, I signed like <laughs> a while ago. Yeah. Where is this offer coming from? Them and NC state kind of came late. Um, and I was like, man, like where, <laughs> what, <laughs> yeah. why did I, I would say everybody was like anxious about everything and tell me I didn't need to wait. Like where are these offers coming from? <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, I, you know, I, I had not had a lot of speed. I had not been great at 800 meters. Um, I'd actually moved out of the 800 cause I kept getting thrown around in our region by like these big strong guys that were running the 800. And I just didn't think I, I had those type of wheels in me. And I, and I think I didn't even break two minutes for 800 in high school. Are you serious? Um, I broke it on the relays, but I never broke it in the open. Hmm. Uh, wow. So, uh, and then, yeah, fast forward to several years later, and then you, I can run two back-to-back. So, but I did. My freshman year at Winthrop, I, so I basically went from a two-flat or 159 guy to, I ran 151 my freshman year. So I dropped nine oh, wow. seconds in the 800, which is a ton of time. It's almost, I dropped about the same amount of time in the mile and the 800 both my freshman year of college because I, I ran, I think, 352 or something for 1,500. Um, which is about a 407 mile, so from 416 down to f- roughly 407, um, and down to 151. So that I, I, you don't normally drop nine seconds in both those events. Yeah. So I was obviously underdeveloped. I think a lot of it was maturation. I think I hit my, I didn't start kind of, for lack of a better word, hitting my stride. Yeah. <laughs> <Like a> nice <laughs> little analogy here it. for the yeah, like running marks. podcast. Yeah. So yeah, I hit my stride a little later than matured. I just I, th- I think I was a, a little bit of a late bloomer. Yeah. Um, so I, I ran two years at Winthrop, uh, and then I, I guess we'll kind of get into what the rest of the story is kind of about, um, the actual meat of, of what we wanted to talk about. And I had a great, great summer training that year and was looking forward to kind of trying to make a really good go at being a better cross-country runner um, than I had been. I'd had kind of a dis- what I felt was a disappointing cross-country season my first two years. Um, and my coach at Winthrop, was, he was a pretty big middle distance coach, and uh, cross country was, I don't want to say an afterthought for us, but it was like the way we even really trained for cross country was with more of an idea for track down the line. Um, we weren't a high volume team. There weren't people, nobody was, we had a couple of guys that would during the summer, like crank out some eighties or nineties, but like coach wasn't really happy with that. Um, you know, we were more of a kind of a middle distance mindset coach. Um, and cross country being good at cross country generally came later. And, uh, and for folks who maybe aren't so familiar with the kind of college running scene, it, it's very odd. Imagine if to use another football analogy, if you can only have a defensive coach or an offensive coach, Yeah, that's really in every, every college team kind of makes that choice. Do we want a sprint coach, a middle distance coach or a distance coach to some degree? I'm yeah. kind of exaggerating a bit, but it is very much, you can find yourself on the outside looking in. If you're more of a middle distance guy, it's yeah. a distance coach or vice versa. Yeah. It, well, I mean, they obviously, all of them coach both disciplines. Like from most, most of your distance coaches at, in college, unless it's, unless you're at, happen to be at a school where you're like Colorado where the primary focus is on distance running period, right. they do have a middle distance coach there. Um, but most programs aren't, especially at a 
you know, a mid-major don't have the funding to have <laughs> multiple distance coaches. Right. So, you know, there's only three coaches on staff for the entire track team. Right. So and that's covering everything you're talking about. Javelin, long jump, triple jump, hurdles, you know. Male and female. Yeah, yeah. male and female, everybody. So, you know, um, you have to kind of be versatile and you have to kind of pick things. You have to pick, you know, kind of the way you're going to approach stuff. And um, like in most endurance, like you're either kind of an aerobic or anaerobic based coach and he was very anaerobic based. And so that obviously did wonders for my speed. I, I got a lot faster, you know, I, you know, I, I don't think I could have broke 53 seconds or 54 seconds in the 400 in high school. But by the time I was at Winthrop, I was capable of running 49s on the relays all the time and stuff. So, um, that's not, you know, that came with the, the focus on the middle distances and, and doing a lot of anaerobic work, uh, as well as I think some maturation and stuff, but, I, I was really determined to have a good cross country season that fall and put in a, you know, a, a, the most training I'd ever had over the summer. And I, I came into the season really healthy. Um, and he was an aerobic base. Uh, he was an anaerobic kind of base coach, like speed endurance oriented. But we, at the beginning of the year, we always did this 10 mile tempo run in Kings mountain, North Carolina, which is outside of Charlotte. Uh, it was kind of like the, one kind of thing, hard, long thing we would do every year that like we never did something like our long runs were normally about 10 or 11 miles. And so this was kind of unusual for what we did, but we always went out there and we ran really hard. Like, you know, it's not a race. It's not supposed to be a race, but it pretty much turned that there's team records. So (laughs) like, it's like a a race that's not a race. Um, but, uh, it's like a a Winthrop cross country institution. Yeah. It's, it's part of what everybody goes through there. And, uh, and even some of the guys that he coached post collegiately too, they, the two of them actually had had kind of like the all time record on it. But, uh, I ran the number two time on it that a Winthrop athlete had ever run. Uh, I don't remember what it is now. Uh, but I was like super jacked up about the season. Um, but that would pretty much be the last good thing that I would do for two years. Um, I started having problems a couple of weeks later with like breathing and stuff. And it, it just came out of nowhere. And we've been through a really dry patch and the, some of the trainers and stuff, I'm like, maybe you've developed asthma. Like we've got poor air quality in Rock Hill, uh, really high, like lung cancer rates and stuff. Um, with like du- nu- nuclear power is like right up the thing. And like with where we, I think sit in like the jet stream and stuff, it's like all that crap blows our way. Uh, like we have, like, if you look at like the rates for like stuff, like I think like lung cancer and like, sinus infections and all this upper respiratory stuff there's all it's really high in our areas so um they're like oh you probably just you, you might have picked up like some adult onset athletic induced asthma and i was like what no there's no way and so um i started seeing doctors you know they put me on some inhalers and some other crap i don't even remember what it was now didn't really work and i was ha- i'd have good days and i'd have bad days or some days i'd be you know, running like in workouts, kind of where I was supposed to be and feel kind of normal. And then there would be literally workouts where I was running behind the girls team and I was running flat out. And, uh, that's, you know, not to knock on girls. There's certainly some really good distance runners, but it's not where I was supposed to be, um, at that point in time. And I kind of did that for the next couple of months until the end of the season, had a pretty disappointing season. Um, which was frustrating to me because my younger brother had joined the team and had, had signed with Winthrop. Um, so I was kind of really looking forward to having this, like having him around again. And 
being part of the team and was really excited about like the prospects of our team. And I kind of felt like I let a lot of it down because with me not running well, it kind of changed the dynamics of the team um, with our abilities to like finish high as a team. Um, and I mean, we still had two other really good runners at the time, but you know, when you've got a third really good runner that's capable right. of the same thing that changes the scoring a lot. So I, you know, I was certainly really frustrated with it. Um, but I basically just started, I, it started with upper respiratory stuff and then I got a sinus infection from hell that would never, would not go away. Um, and I just kept getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And eventually come like December, I couldn't, I couldn't really like, I couldn't exercise anymore and I was getting really, really run down. Um, then like all this weird stuff, like then these like crazy bloody noses started happening. And that's when you like just quit seeing like a regular doctor and they're like, we need to get you to an ENT. And I started seeing a, an ENT and ear, nose and throat doctor. He took one look at me and asked me what drugs I was on. Like he thought I had a cocaine problem because of how destroyed the tissue was on the inside of my nose. It's like, nah, man, like I've never, I like snorted pixie stick dust off the table in like middle school, but like I hadn't put anything else up my nose. I don't think since then, like, yeah. I know I'm skinny, but this is not the reason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, uh, you know, I, you know, I promised doc and like, he didn't, he's heard from every addict, you know, like, oh, no, no, I don't do drugs, <laughs> you know? So like, I just, I, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't really know what was going on. They started doing a bunch of tests on me and you know, this is January now. And it's like cross country finished up in October and I'm not getting any better. Um, I started losing my hearing. Uh, so it just, it, it got really, really rough and they couldn't figure out what was going on. And so one thing led to another, then they start testing you for stuff like AIDS and Lyme's disease and you doing full blown allergy panels where they like prick you all over your back and stuff. Found out I wasn't allergic to anything. Like I'm literally not allergic to anything. Um, so it wasn't that. And, uh, finally, like my sinuses had not cleared. He's like, I think if we like go in there and like scrape some of this out and actually do sinus surgery on you, like it should help. Like maybe this stuff's just like impacted and backed up in there. He did that in March of that, of 2008. And, uh, I went back for a, uh, follow-up visit in 2008, uh, in April and I was not healing. None of my wounds, it was like two or three weeks after the surgery and none of my like sutures and stuff had healed. He's like, something's wrong with your immune system. We got to figure this out. And that's when they started doing the tests and kind of narrowed it down to what he thought it might be. And then, uh, on April, Oh God, I feel bad now. It's either April 23rd or April 25th of 2008. I got the call, uh, whatever that Wednesday was, I was at a Wednesday night, middle school meet watching my sister run. And my doctor called me and it was like six 30. And I was like, why is my doctor calling me this late? You know, I yeah. uh, come to find out it was not just my doctor. It was two of my doctors calling me together to kind of unload this news on me. Right. And, uh, I found out later they'd already called my parents, um, and told them they called me and they're like, you've got this thing called, uh, at the time it was called Wegener's granulomatosis. It's an autoimmune disease. Um, we're going to have to be passing you off because we can't treat it. Um, they didn't tell me much more than that. Um, it's 2008. I don't have a smartphone. smartphone yeah. So I've got a flip phone. So you can't really, you just kind of like, okay, whatever. Like they didn't tell really how serious it was. Um, I went home, pulled up Google, clicked on Wikipedia, got a couple of sentences in when 
you're reading stuff like, well, up until the late 1980s, this thing had a, you know, a 90% death rate at one year after diagnosis. So you're like, what? You know, and right. start reading about Did all I these things. Right? Yeah. And it's cause they couldn't, well, like I learned this later on, like back then they didn't, they knew how to slow it down. They didn't know how to put it in remission. They didn't know how to reset the immune system back then. And so they hadn't found the right drug to do it. And, um, so I just kind of like shut my computer and was like, okay. <laughs> cause like I also read in there too, it's like, you know, 50% of patients like are able to get this into remission and 50% aren't and 50% might have relapses and stuff if they do get it into remission. Um, but otherwise like if it's treated, people can like live healthy lives, but if they continue to have problems, it could be really dangerous, you know, and there's all these stats and that's when I was just kind of like, yeah, you know, I'm just going to have to deal with this as it comes. I can't, this is terrifying. And, uh, you know, they found me a rheumatologist. I got involved with some wonderful doctors at the medical university of South Carolina in Charleston, South Carolina. And they started treatments on me. I even got a little worse before I kind of started getting better. I spent about a week in the hospital with my kidney shutting down. Um, but what the disease is, is, um, it's now called the, by its official name, um, it's called granulomatosis with polyangitis. Um, it's uh, in the vasculitis family. So it attacks the um, small blood vessels. And uh, there's different forms of vasculitis. The vasculitis, pretty much the vasculitis you have is based off of the um, blood cells and the tissues that are affected. So mine primarily affects my sinuses, my ears, uh, my lungs, and my kidneys, and ultimately your heart if they can't stop it. Um, so through the years, I've had varying problems with all of those. Um, I've had sinus surgery. I still have nodules in my lungs. Um, I've about lost my kidneys twice. Um, they're still hanging in there. Um, but I was able to get into remission. Um, and I spent two years away from running. I was kind of jogging, but I had this idea that I was going to be the next Lance Armstrong. And, uh, I still had two years of uh, college eligibility left because I had not obviously been active. So late in my senior year, um, I started hunting for schools and, uh, <clears throat> that's when Appalachian state came on the map and uh coach Kershio and I uh had a conversation in the bathroom at Clemson University during indoor track meet and he heard that I was leaving Winthrop and was like uh we need to have a talk we're gonna bring you up on a visit and I said okay and I went on a visit and I was like this is home this is where I want to be this is the program I want to be a part of and uh I signed on there to go to grad school um to get my master's in exercise uh, physiology and run for uh, one of the most historic track and field programs kind of on the East Coast. Um, you know, we had a top to bottom great track team and uh, we were undefeated while I was there. Um, I got back to full health, got even better. Um, I qualified for NCAA regionals, won a couple of Southern Conference titles, uh, tangoed with Cameron Bean for the first time. Uh, he was such a douchebag. Uh, <laughs> this dude that was running around in a girl's jersey that was taped up in the back and wearing shades at an indoor track meet sometimes. And you're just like, who is this douchebag? Um, but that's I quit. True, by the way, that's a true story. Yeah, that, not that, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's not that, that. None of that is a lie. Uh, and, and who's that guy that keeps following around that he calls P Money? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who's who's his sidekick? Uh, but yeah. Well, I quit care like in those situations, like we hated him at app and it's like two dogs when they're on the either side of the fence, they're just barking at each other, you know, and then they get on the same side of the fence and then they're just like running around playing together. <laughs> That's kind of how it was with Cameron. 
Um, but yeah, so like I, I had a wonderful experience at app and finished there in 2011 and the Olympic trials were a year away. So I was like, I'm going to swing for the fence here and try to qualify for the Olympic trials. The, at the time, the standard to qualify was 343 for the 1500. Um, I had to run 345 in college. So I was like, I'm two seconds away. Like I gotta, I gotta make a go with this. And, uh, I, I went for it. <laughs> so. Right on. Right on. And for, 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 Folks who are listening who are more oriented towards the longer distance, the 343-1500 is basically like a four-flat mile. 402. Yeah. Not to be um, pretentious. So, no, but I yeah. appreciate <laughs> your, 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 your being pretentious. You know more about it than I do. Um, so Yeah, it's, it's about 17 seconds of addition. It's that one more straightaway. Yeah, yeah. it's it's a, a mile is – if you go out to your local track and run four laps around it, most of the time now that's not a mile anymore. Right. Uh, most tracks are 400 meters now, uh, actual miles, 409 or 1,609 meters. Um, for the older crowd, 440s when everybody used to run 440 yards. If you did run four laps around those types of tracks, that was a full mile. So it's super confusing. We don't make it easy for anybody to follow stuff because you do run the mile sometimes you're in the 1500 they're 109 meters apart one's three and three quarters laps right one's a full four and nine meters so right and i prefer the 1500 i know people are like why there's 100 meters difference. you don't understand that's a lot of time in 1500 oh, yeah. 100 <laughs> meters of suffering yeah. yeah it's 100 meters of suffering is 100 meters something else can go wrong um so but yeah. the 1500 is the international distance is what they run at the olympics and the right. world championships and stuff so. and a half. right on and so so Talk to us through your quest to make 2012 then. Well, I, uh, st- it started off great. Um, I had the best fall of my life. I was actually working. Cameron got me a job uh, there in Boone. We were working at a little uh, he bed moved, and breakfast. He had moved to Boone to be He had moved Zap to Fitness. Boone. He had been moved to Boone to be with Zap Fitness. Okay. Um, he uh, was the only athlete to ever take Pete Ray, the coach there, up on the offer. Um you know, they're a professional running group, um, but they have standards and Cameron hadn't quite met it, but he's extended this offer to literally thousands of people over the years. It's like, if you come up here and train, like I'll coach you for free and you can like run with the guys and everything. Um, nobody ever was like, everybody's always kind of like, eh, you know, like, oh, I, I won't help. Cameron's like, I got this. <laughs> like, yeah. and he, he packed up his car, packed and, his Jeep, more his, specifically. His Jeep, yeah. yeah. His Jeep specifically. And uh, moved to the mountains of North Carolina. Um, and we'd started hanging out that He'd already been there a year. And uh, we started hanging out some that second year. And I, I caught some flack from some of the guys on the team. They're like, what are you hanging out with that douchebag for? <laughs> like, guys, he's actually really cool. You're going to start wearing sunglasses inside now, too. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of at that stage, too, honestly. Um <laughs> So we were two peas in a pod. We hit like we hit it off kind of immediately, and uh, he got me a job at Gideon Ridge, like working at the restaurant and in the end there, and it, it went great. I actually ended up with an opportunity through a few friends to go out to Boulder, Colorado, uh, for an altitude stint, and uh, I quit my job <laughs> and uh, went out to Boulder for like five or six weeks um, with some people and really live like a professional athlete for five or six weeks. Like I'd never done that before, like not working, but just, just running came back broke, uh, moved in with my parents at 24 and, uh, for about five months while I got my, like started working again back home. I moved back home for about a year there, uh, to South Carolina. Wasn't happy. Um, 
I ended up having another relapse and I was like, well, it's clearly this, this area I'm getting out of here. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> so I, you know, um, after I, I had problems with it in 2012, 2013, you know, I started with problems in April. So I had a really good buildup and I thought I was going to be able to take a crack at the standard and in April of April is just not a good month for me. Um, it's not a good month for me, not a good month for my family. So it, you know, I just was like, I was happy in Boone. I didn't have any health problems up there. Like, <laughs> I literally, uh, my roommate was gone to a race and I, he was gone. And in the two days he was gone, I had gone to Boone, gotten a job and moved all my stuff out. I <laughs> uh, went for a job interview. They told us, we'll let you know in a couple of days. I got a phone call when I was on the way home. They're like, can you start tomorrow? I was like, how about two days? I don't yeah. have, I literally have the clothes on my back. Yeah. And, uh, so I, I moved back up there, slept on some couches for a couple of months. Um, cause like my health had been bad for about a year at that point. Like I'd been in and out of remission and things hadn't really been going well. I tried to start running again. It didn't really go well. And so I was like moving on with life. I started applying for coaching jobs. I was working up there. I was like, at least if I'm up there, I'm around my friends. I'm happy. Like, but I was, I was applying for coaching jobs. You know, this is 2013 now. Like I didn't think I wanted to run anymore. And I was went for several interviews and was like trying to figure out kind of what I wanted to do. And I went on a run with Cameron and my best friend, Chris Moen. Uh, they were kind of all summer long. They were kind of pulling at me and dragging me to kind of go run. And I just wasn't having it. Um, I would go run some, but not, you know, it's like you tag along for like a five mile run or something. And it just, it, it, things weren't going well. My body wasn't open. Um, I'd also recently been diagnosed with like panic attacks and depression. So like I was just in a really weird space and I just, I really was just kind of looking to have fun and kind of figure out my next step in life. Um, but I went on a run on Watauga river road, uh, in Boone, which, uh, is a gravel run road, uh, in the Valley up there outside of Boone that runs along the Watauga river. So the name <laughs> actually fits in this, <laughs> yeah. in this sense. And it's, it's just a gravel road that I'd trained on hundreds of times when I was at Appalachian and uh in the year after like i just I, everything clicked that day i had fun again running um with those two guys it, running was effortless again for the first time in a long time and i mean i like literally nothing else that i've done in the last four years or three years would have happened if it weren't for that run um i don't I mean, I say that, but like, you know, maybe I would have found running, uh, but it's become this magical thing, um, with our friend. I mean, my two best friends are responsible for, for getting me back out the door when I really didn't know that I wanted to. Um, I guess the fire, the, there was still some like smoldering pieces down there in the pit of my stomach that I just didn't know were there. And, uh, it was one that was very easily kicked and the fire started again. Um, pretty much from the fall of 2013 after I went on that run, I pretty much at that point in time recommitted. And I mean, I had thrown all my running shit. I like I'd had a panic attack. I'd thrown all my running stuff in the trash can. Um, when I was at home with my parents one day, I was like ripping posters off the wall, like everything. Like it was like, a, it was like an overly dramatic scene out of a movie. Right. It's almost like <laughs> a really bad breakup. Yeah. I was like, yeah, I was breaking up with running. That's what I was doing. That's a great way of putting it. Actually. I was breaking up with running. I was like, I'm done with this relationship. I'm over the heartbreak. I'm tired of training really hard. I'm tired of things not working out my way. And I just walked away from it. I was like, I'm done. And, um, 
That's when I moved. Like I moved back to the mountains. I was like, I, I, I want to be happy again. And I was happy up there. And I'll figure, uh, you know, you're in your mid twenties. You hadn't really figured stuff out. Um, so I'd always want to be a college coach. So I was like, at least till I find a coaching gig, like I'll just go up there and live on my friend's couches for a couple of months. And they, they, they wanted me to come. It was an, they, they kind of drugged me up there. They helped me get that job at the, at the resort and everything. So like, it was, you know, it I, like I, and I, I talk about this actually to not to market myself, but I did write a book last year in 2017 called going the distance, uh, the story of a vasculitis patient on the road to Olympic glory, uh, available on amazon.com in Kindle and paperback. That's right. Um, anyways, it, uh, you know, it, I've been lucky because I have, you know, I grew up in a very like middle-class family. My parents were teachers. Uh, well, my dad was a teacher. My mom was a preschool teacher. And, you know, you know, we weren't certainly, I, I wasn't allowed to do everything. I didn't have everything. I didn't, you know, we got told no a lot, but I've been spoiled with love and a support network that is unbreakable. And, um, between them and my, and my, and a few of my really dear friends, like they've made me the person that I am in my, at 31 years old, like I don't have kids. Like I haven't had that life changing experience yet, but the things that have changed my life and made me who I am now is spending in large amounts of the times and really some intense moments with, with some very close friends and hashing out life together, figuring out life together, having these amazing conversations on, on runs. When you spend so much time together, you kind of have a lot of time to kind of cover every topic under the sun that you can possibly think about. I mean, literally everything from talking about astrophysics and the sun to like, you know, <laughs> to talking about the stupid stuff you had done the night before, uh, and, and bragging about, you know, your escapades. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, you cover everything and, you know, some of those conversations and my ability to have discussions and debates with those people have, have made me the person that I am. So, um, none of that would have happened. I wouldn't have broke four minutes. I broke four minutes for the first time in August of 2015 at 28 years old. Um, and then the following year had the, 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 the quote unquote storybook year and qualified for the Olympic trials. I ran a top 15 time in the U S for 1500 meters. Um, and, and how many rounds of treatment had you gone through at that point? Well, initially the initial treatment for the disease in 2008 was six months of, uh, chemotherapy, oral cytoxin. Ooh. Uh, so you wake up every day and take poison pills and go on about your day and, you know, hope you don't vomit. Um, I, I, I will say this. I've learned very well in the last 10 or 12 years. I, I can take drugs really well. <laughs> uh, I even had like a little problem there for a little while with, uh, with, um, oxys and vicodin they were giving you bottomless prescriptions of those and when you're also not doing well emotionally those are easy things to fall into and of course 10 years ago they also weren't talking about what problem those could have um i've also had problems with some of the antipsychotic pills that they've you know that they give you that are really strong um so you know it's 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 been a roller coaster for sure um but i have had that support network and that's what i you know, one of the sec- large, a large section of the book is, um, about how that support networks kind of helped get me through things. And it's not like they're like always there for me to like, Oh, like, do you need to cry? Do you need a hug? It's just like, they're there sometimes just to treat you like a normal person when everybody else kind of looks at you and is kind of afraid of you. Cause they don't understand what you're going on. You have a really rare disease and 
you look fine to a lot of people. They say, oh, you, but you look fine. And it's like, well, I'm literally in the process of trying not to die. My body's attacking me and trying to kill me. Right, and you try not to die by taking poison pills. Yeah, by taking poison pills. Um, now, you know, so I went through that th- that treatment in 2008. Um, I went on some, like, light poison pills in 2012 and 13 that diet didn't really poison. do uh, – Yeah, diet poison. Um, and then 2013 is when I first got in- introduced to an immunotherapy drug, which is chemo light, basically, is the easiest way to describe it. Um, it's a more targeted – targeted I the air quotes targeted uh form of kind of a chemotherapy drug um and it's called rituxan it's fifteen thousand dollars a bag um and you get four rounds of it uh, a week apart um and that's just the, the bag of it of about 250 milliliters or 300 milliliters of it so <laughs> uh I, I feel a certain way about the pharmaceutical industry that we won't go into um we can go for a run and we can talk about it then yeah you know they could sell that drug for a 30% markup at $300, but it cost me 15000 And that's not the chair you sit in. That's not the other drugs you get while you have to take. It's, you know. Yeah. So, uh, and the scans and the blood work. But, yeah. So, I, that was my first introduction to immunotherapy in 2013. It did great for me. I had four years of, of health. And um, I've been, I've now had four more rounds of that, or three more rounds of that. I um, after 2016, after my kind of storybook year with the trials and everything where I made the semifinals and, and was just kind of like one of your run of the mill, better distance runners in the country and, um, was kind of finally living out that dream. And, um, I started working with the vasculitis foundation, uh, as kind of a health and outreach ambassador. Uh, we started what was called the victory over vasculitis campaign, um, where we kind of encourage people to find their own victories in life, kind of regardless of whether it's getting out of bed and making your sandwich that day um, or going for a walk around the block or there's been a girl that has the same illness that I have. She's climbed Mount Everest and done the Iditarod. She was the first female to ever accomplish both of those. And she has the same disease that I do. Um, So Cindy Abbott's her name. She actually has written a book too. And if I was a better friend, I would remember the title of her book. Um, But uh, it's, you know, it's, Cindy Abbott, it's A-B-O-T-T. I'll look it up real quick. Keep talking. Yeah. Um, she, uh, you know, so there's all these incredible stories because we're, you know, my disease is about one or or about two to three people per million. So there's not a lot of us. Yeah. Um, so it's it's uh, it's a tight support network. We started the, the Victory Over Vasculitis campaign. And to start with, it was like I was being a bit egotistical and I'm like, I'm going to be like the Lance Arm, well, without the EPO, but I'm going to be the Lance Armstrong guy in this, in this situation, like carrying the, carrying the flag out front and like inspiring everybody. But then the more I got involved with it and the stories and the sharing that I hear, it's like, I, dude, I just get out and like run in a circle, man. It's like, you're hearing about a, a single mom that's taking care of her mother and it's got a teenage daughter. She's working two to three jobs and she's dealing with the same disease that I have. Like, it's like, <laughs> I'm certainly by no means tougher than her. Uh, you hear stories like that all the time, the things that people have been through. And it went from something of me being like, I'm the spokesperson, I'm this guy to being like, no, this is all of our things. And the community we have, um, you know, it's, it's one of the things it's, it's one of like, it's why I haven't given it up now. It's why I've decided to make another comeback after having, uh, my worst year of health in 10 years in 2017. Um, because I, 
this community wants me to do it. This community has inspired me to keep, like I've bought into my own story at this point in time. It's like, I've become part of it and it's not just about me anymore. Um, it's about this whole story. Um, and I'm, I'm running not, not just for the cause of vasculitis, but for the cause of, of chasing your dream and doing something that's difficult and overcoming these odds. And, um, you know, not to knock on some of my competitors, but they're just kind of boring people. Sometimes they just eat, sleep and run and they're just doing it for selfish reasons. And I'm no longer doing it for selfish reasons. I'm doing it to inspire a group of people uh, and be part of that story and be a part of their lives and have them along for this. And it's been the most fulfilling thing I've ever done in my life. Yeah. And I, and I want to kind of back it up a bit. So I just realized, I don't know if I ever told you this, but my sister actually has an autoimmune disorder. Really? It's called POTS. Okay. Yeah. So it's like, for those of you who don't know, first of all, I'm not, I'm not great at describing exactly what it is. <laughs> I've had to get like a, basically like a minor in health. <laughs> like, yeah. And I, I, body, you, I basically have a minor doctorate degree. Right. <laughs> and as her older brother, I'm like, I don't know what it is. I just know what the symptoms mm-hmm. are and how to treat it. But like, so for example, she has a lot of seizures. Um, and uh, very low blood pressure. So, like, yeah. to the point where, obviously, you need blood to go to transport oxygen to your muscles so you can move your muscles. Like, when she has low blood pressure, I mean, we're talking, like, nothing. Like, yeah. you could literally pick her up and drop her, and she would fall because she has no control over her muscles. So, like, she, does, she can't extend her arms to catch okay. herself. Like, it's totally Scary. paralyzing for, for days at a time. And she, I think she first was diagnosed when she was 19 or 20. I can't remember yeah. which. And when you talk about forming the community, I think that's almost that's one of the kind of knives in the side of somebody who, who who suffers from a chronic illness that you don't think about is not everybody else does especially not at a young age no. because her friends are like oh yeah i feel tired i went out drinking last night and now yeah. i feel tired too and she's like no you don't understand f you yeah like this <laughs> like, is not first of all i have no control over this yeah. and this will last for days and i'm not tired i am physically unable to transport oxygen to my muscles as, as we say in the kind of like the autoimmune you're looking at something that's incurable yeah, it's systematic, multi-systematic, so it's going to affect multiple tissues, multiple organs, multiple systems, um, and potentially and, deadly. You yeah. know, that's the, those three. Second, yeah, yeah those th- th- those are like when people somebody's like, well, it doesn't seem like it's much. It's like, listen, this like this is serious. Um, people die. Like people don't make it from out of these things. Like this isn't just somebody being tired. I don't just have a cold. It's like no, my body's trying to kill me right now, and. You know, you kind of have to get rude about it because it is it's, it's off putting sometimes and it's hard to relate to people. Um, I've, I've certainly become a lot better at it. Um, it but it took me, you know, when you're diagnosed when you're 20 years old, you don't you know, it took me seven years to be able to talk about it. Yeah. Like people, some people knew about it because I kind of talked about it. So obviously to some you, you can't just keep it a complete secret. I mean, hell, like there was a few articles written on it, you know, so you can't keep it a complete secret. But at the same time, it was just like not something that I was very forthcoming with, with the information about. Um, It's just really, it's personal. It's personal and kind of ugly, um, which is why a lot of autoimmune patients struggle struggle with a lot of mental health problems. Yeah. So on on that. It's alienating. Yeah. I mean, so let's let's talk. There was a, you were uh, in Outside Online just like last week, a couple weeks ago. I was. Um, that was about. incredible, by the way, because I was actually in the middle of reading that author's book mm-hmm. when I got the opportunity to be interviewed by him because he had written a book with Steve Magnus called Peak Performance, which is fantastic. Right. And I was in the middle of reading that book when that opportunity came up to right. do that article. And I was like, this is 
It's like one in a million opportunities. Like you can't say no to this. Well, so it was about you and Sarah True and a few other actors yeah. that had struggled with mental issues around around your performance and, and all that sort of thing. And it was, um, and then it was also in your book. It's essentially it's the first chapter. Yeah. Um, you you, you kind of talk about that, and so um, in your book, and I, I want to give you the opportunity to talk a little bit about this in part because I think it's interesting, in part because I don't totally get it and I want to get it better. Um, you talk about adopting an attitude of hopelessness. Um, and then your tattoo across your chest says, all hope, hope is gone. All hope is gone. Um, that is a little bit about that. Well, first off, uh, my mother's never been overly fond of our tattoos. Me and my brother both have a lot of tattoos. Um, that one made her cry. Mm-hmm. Um, because she was kind of aware of some of the things that I'd gone through. Like I'm pretty open with my parents, especially at 31 now. There's... I mean, obviously they don't know everything, but <laughs> they don't need to know everything. But at 31, there's no, like, you know, I'm not going to get in trouble anymore. Um, so, you know, it's like they they thought until I really explained it to them, they thought I was just continuing to spiral at that point. Um, but what it is, is it's kind of it's got kind of a Middle East or an East, an Eastern philosophy kind of Buddhist attitude about it um and and with me and what that means is is by saying all hope is gone it it to me is not a negative thing a lot of a lot and, and there's nothing wrong with it like i'm not attacking other people that find comfort in hope um whatever you find your comfort in whether it's hope whether it's religion whether it's you know god whether it's money what you know whatever you find your hope and your joy in on the things that get you through life, like, so be it, you know? Um, but for me, I had spent and wasted so much energy. It's just, I felt like hoping that things were going to get better. And it was to me, wasted energy. Um, I needed to be okay with whatever happened Mm -hmm. in life. Um, and that's kind of what all hope is gone means. Um, you know, I, whatever happens to me in life, I'm just going to continue to do, to do and chase the things that I love. Um, and if I reach my goals, then so be it. Um, if I don't, I, I'm going to be happy that I stood up and swung hard at, um, at the pitches that came my way. Uh, and you know, it, sometimes it would be a bitter, pill, bitter pill to swallow if I, I don't achieve the things that I ultimately want to achieve as an athlete. Um, but there's more to life than athletics. Um, there's, you know, as we've talked about some of the things we've talked about on this podcast, you know, there's, there's more to life than just, than just running and just sport. Um, you know, there's, you know, sp- spending time with the people that you care about and making, you know, a positive impact on this world. Um, so I just don't find it at my age and with the things that I have been through, um, it's wasted energy for me to hope. Um, I, can't control my immune system i can't control the things that happen to my internal body as much as i try to sometimes with how i how i live with eat sleep and diet they still don't know at this point in time in 2018 what causes my disease they don't know what brings it out of remission um you know i tend to think with mine i think a lot of mine's probably stress related um but that's just a theory i have um so it's just you don't and for me going after hope and attaching hope for something to get better, it's just like, no, like if I don't get better, I have to, I have to live with that. Right. So I can't just sit and hope. Um, so I just, after I, when I was, I was given a book, um, that, um, by a dear friend of mine, she has 
struggled with a lot of the mental health issues. Um, but she recommended, um, a, like a Buddhist monk lady that, um, I think the title of the book was like when things fall apart. Um, and it talked about hopelessness and, and, um, that's kind of where I first stumbled upon that. And when it, it, it clicked with me at that point in time. Um, I, I, I really enjoy the tattoo I have on my chest. It's that phrase is adorned in some really nice red roses and stuff. Um, but I really like, didn't think about the talking point that that would become when you see people <laughs> and meet people. Um, because it's, kind of a attention getter and that's not really what it was meant to be i didn't really think that all the way through i probably should put it somewhere a little more personal <laughs> so it wasn't so kind of in your face when you meet me because half the time i have my shirt off um or three most of the time i have my shirt off uh as a as a distance runner so i, I it just seemed like the logical place to put it for me and it's 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 created some awkward conversations at the gym that you're just not like prepared to have. Like and you're just right, trying to go on about your day and it's like, Oh, they'll, they'll like, are you depressed or something? And you're like, dude, you don't even like, <laughs> you know, we're, we're into a podcast. So God knows how long into this podcast. We haven't even been through it all. Like, it's like, I can't do that. Yes. Yeah. Spot me. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Spot my 45 pound bitch, bro. <laughs> Depressed is not even beginning. Yeah, you know, but but I but I think it's it, I think it's interesting because I think that that hope is kind of one of those words that that we presume is positive, all positive. Yeah, no downsides to hope. And and what you're kind of describing is that for you in your journey, and and with some of the the particular mental issues you've had, hope has actually been a negative thing. It's it been, has. It's been paralyzing yes. almost. Um, and, that's a good and, word, paralyzing. That's and, a really good and word. even even maybe the the coming down on the other end of hope has been kind of devastating and catastrophic for you. So I I, I do think it's kind of interesting that I, I would say ninety nine point nine percent of us think of hope as all positive, all great, and so somebody sees that and they're like, wow, that guy's really a downer. But, yeah, that that's that. And that's I mean I I I'm kind of uh, a jerk sometimes, and uh, I'm a realist. I'm not a downer. I'm just a realist. Mm-hmm. Um, which can come off as a downer to some people if you're not all positive all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm just, I, I, when you're confronted with an illness like this and some of the other things that have happened in my life, like you just, it's where, it's where I've ended up. And like, I, I certainly don't bash anybody that puts, I hope gets people through a lot of really crummy situations in life. And um, I think some people could benefit more from uh, the the same type of mindset that I have because I think in in some of their cases there there's a way out but they don't feel like there is right. but like once they kind of accept that you know that they've been dealt a certain hand and you just deal with it I think that would help them but other people finding you know find comfort in that word and find comfort in that same mentality so that it's certainly not wrong. Uh, it's only wrong if it's not working for you, and it wasn't working for me. Yeah, fair. So, yeah, absolutely, and you know, it, it it's interesting too because, I mean, like, one thing we talk about a lot, or you hear people talk about a lot, is separate the mind and body, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, be strong mentally so you can be strong physically, yada yada. And one thing we talk about a lot on this podcast is how you really can't, right? The mind and body are almost kind of one organ, so to speak. I wrote a and, blog on that. You can't separate things out. One, you can't. You can't separate out life from from this other parts. You can't compartmentalize life. Everything affects everything else you do. Right. And you know, one thing. I mean, 
once again, I'm almost just speaking from my, my sister's experience. And so it's, it's not quite the same, but I mean, there's a reason that folks with, with chronic illness, especially at a young age, there's a very high rate of folks who struggle with, with mental health oh, yeah. and emotional health because they are connected. Um, and it is a lot to accept hopelessness, right? Where, yeah. where you, you're in a situation where maybe hope is a, a hindrance to acknowledgement. Yeah. It's like when you're faced with something that it, it, 12, 13, 18, 20, 22, like to be handed this diagnosis card basically is like, you're going to have to deal with this crummy situation the rest of your life. Yeah. Every few months, even if nothing else goes wrong, you're going to have to be checked. You're going to have to, you know, this is what you're, this is what the rest of your life is going to look like. There's not a lot of hope in that situation. And, uh, you know, you, we can hope for a treatment. We can hope, but you can't like hoping for a treatment is to me, it's like, we need to get research money. We need to, we need to do things, you know, we need to make like, and like I said, there's certainly nothing wrong with that. And there's a lot of, you know, a lot of patients say it, a lot of doctors say it. I go to these symposiums and these like conferences stuff. And, you know, there's all this talk of, of, of hope all the time and it gets people through a lot of stuff. But I do think that, that it, too many people lean on it. I think they, it, it creates some like stagnation, like it makes some people stagnant and they just kind of, they don't have a direction. They don't have something to kind of try to get them and help, help them get out of bed. And that's what I'm trying to provide with people. And that's why, you know, that's one of the reasons why I wrote that book. And one of the reasons why I've, I, and before I wrote the book, I was doing a better job of sharing the stuff that I went through. It's like, this is the same thing that most other rare patients, their disease patients go through the same thing. Cancer patients go through the same thing. Anybody that's lived life and had traumatic things happen to them. Like they, we all go through these same processes. Um, you know, we don't have to stand here and compare scars. Like we can just figure out like a way through this and learn from each other. Right on. And your book is called going the distance. Yes. Cindy Abbott's book is called reaching beyond the clouds, reaching beyond. I knew it had reaching in it. There you go. What you mentioned a blog a second ago. Uh, do you, do you keep a blog or? Yeah, I've not been as diligent about it recently. It, it was my initial foray into sharing. Right. Um, cause you and, said in outside online connecting with a larger group is part of what keeps you mentally healthy. Yeah. And it, I first started sharing a lot of these things, I think in 2014, 2015, somewhere in that time period is when I wrote the first, um, one, um, and one of the original blogs I wrote was all hope is gone. Um, and kind of explaining my mindset behind that. Uh, and then that blog kind of took a back seat once, uh, I started work with the foundation because I was writing stuff for them all the time. So that kind of became harder to keep right. on top of it. And I was working, uh, and then we started writing the book. So, right. um, it's, I've, I, I revisit it sometimes. Um, it's be hudge nasty. Uh, yeah, on blog, blog spot, blog spot <laughs> as is all of my other social media. If anybody out there wants to follow this nonsense that comes out of my mouth all the time. Um, but yeah, once I wrote the book and then, uh, like we said, just to begin, I do a weekly Facebook live event for my Facebook page is a kind of podcast and we cover everything from track and field that we talk va- we talk vasculitis stuff. Um, there's a lot of patients that have, um, 
got involved with this story and you know we kind of hang out for about 45 minutes or an hour every every wednesday night at 8 p.m oh cool uh eastern standard time and wherever you, wherever you are at in the world right on and at, so so that and that can be found via my brandon facebook page hudgens? yeah okay. brandon hudgens on facebook um i'm good. working in the process of making it something more sustainable like this like something real <laughs> that uh there's been a lot of requests for that actually um for people to be able to listen to it in another place um I've tossed some of them up on YouTube, but they haven't really, I guess I haven't done the right viral thing for them to really take off. And that's not where, unfortunately, a lot of my audience Just you is wait. Yeah. Just start off with like dancing kittens. That's what Yeah. <laughs> Throw some cats on there and. Yeah. And, and uh, make Rick Astley your outro music. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's, let's, uh, let's end on a, on a lighter note here. Uh, favorite workout? Yeah. Oh, favorite workout uh, is probably the workout I do the most often because it's a pre-race workout (laughs) it's uh sets of 500 300 200 uh on the track at mile pace and just a little bit faster uh you get short recovery about 100 meters in about 45 seconds uh between each one of the reps and you get a lap jog between the thing we do that workout it it's kind of our take on the classic eight by 400 or 10 by 400 that a lot of milers, I think every miler ever that's ever run the mile has done eight by 400 at some point in time in their life. It's kind of like the stock workout. Yeah. And, uh, it's a, it's a little different take on it. Um, you know, we'll even shorten up the rest even more some and do it at three K pace during the winter. Um, and it's, it's the workout that I, that we have kind of fallen into me and my, uh, my coach, my so my coach, just to I guess bring some of this together. My coach is uh, James Snyder. He's at Temple University. He was a Zap Fitness intern uh, when Cameron was there, um, and he was the assistant at Appalachian State when I was in school. But he, you know, he's he's landed at Temple University in Philly. Uh, and he's from the Philly area, so he's really happy up there. Right on. Um, but you know, he coaches me from from afar now. Um, we get lucky and see each other a couple times a year. Um, but yeah, that he's uh, a very aerobic based coach. I've become a very aerobic based athlete later in my life. I, I average when I'm healthy in that 80 to 85 into 90 miles a week, a lot I flirt flirted with a hundred, but yeah. that's why you look so smooth in the 5k this morning. Well, I, I look smooth cause I was running slower than everybody else, but, um, <laughs> you weren't running slower than just, me. Just a little faster than P money though. Old, so it's okay. so <laughs> I did get beat by a 42 year old today. Sorry. I got, be, I got beat by a high schooler. I seem to be making Dude, that a we thing. we all got beaten by that high schooler. Not like I had a bad race. They just the, – the, the, the high schooler you're talking about from Dalton High School in yeah. Dalton, Georgia, ran under 15 minutes for a 5K today. Yeah. That's pretty stunning. Are you sponsored by Skechers now, right? I am I am a Skechers performance athlete. Um, they have been uh, part of my journey since the end of 2016. Uh, it's, you know, when you're – supposed to be running as a professional athlete and you end up sick and have after they sign you um it's part of their effort to move on to the track um and then you don't run on the track for yeah. almost two years it's a nerve-wracking but they've they've been in my corner and behind me uh every every step of the way so far so um i've been incredibly thankful of them um i'm excited to have another brand that's not one of your major brands part of the game um i th- i think our sport needs more sponsors like sketchers um and uh if anybody wants to buy a pair of shoes on sketchers.com enter the code da5 at checkout that is d a5 at checkout and you'll get 20 percent off anything that you want to buy on the website um 
they give us for those to share. I mean, right on. so, um, they've been part of the, part of the journey and, and supported me for the last, uh, almost the end of the November basically would be two years. So, um, it's, it, it's, it's funny that I finally got kind of what everybody's goal is a professional athlete to get a sponsorship. And then I pretty much end up not racing for two years, um, <laughs> but no, they've been behind me. They've been on board with everything that I do. And obviously I, um, i I have a much different and wider audience that that's not just runners. Um, that are, I'm just going to snap some pictures of me and put it on a magazine. You know, I have a, a lot of crossover opportunity to, to get in front of a lot of people. So, um, it's certainly, uh, I think been to their benefit to have me on their roster. I think even though I haven't been running, so, um, but that's slowly changing. So, right on. well, yeah. a- athletes who are sponsored by Skechers, including Meb Kafleski, they yeah. speak they speak very highly of Skechers as a as a sponsoring company. Yeah, now I've pretty much only had one sponsor since I was. So, but I, I obviously have a lot of other friends that are sponsored by other companies, and I have dealt with a lot of those people over the years, um, and uh, it wasn't pleasant. So, uh, but once again, you know, I, I also don't have like a big time agent. I don't have, it was me dealing with them. So it's, it's a lot different situation. Um, but my, um, my interact, they've been, I mean, they've been nothing but wonderful to me. Um, so, and their running shoes, I mean, the, you know, the shoes get the job done and i don't mean that like in a like oh they just kind of get the job done like no they like i put them on my feet and i don't have to think about them and that is the best compliment i can give a running shoe Uh, when i put a shoe on my foot and i don't think about it it's perfect it's basically perfect because like you don't you don't want to have to think about your equipment right Right. so it's like the old german philosopher i think heidegger was his name he said the perfect tool is the tool you don't know is there anymore yeah hammer and a nail you shouldn't be thinking about the hammer yeah yeah um so, yeah, and we kind of have the same philosophy with running. All right, so to kind of wrap it up with one last question. Uh, so if you had to give uh, some tips to, to new runners, maybe first-time runners, folks who are maybe new to the sport, they're adults, they're, they're working, they're parents, just kind of learning about the sport and how to, how to get involved and how to train. I will say two things. Can I say two or is that cheating? Go ahead. Uh, I think there's two very important things with running. Um, set a routine. Yep. Um, mark out time on your calendar run because we have busy, 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 busy lives. And if you don't set out that time and make it some somewhat of a priority, obviously I know it's not everybody's first priority when they wake up and spend tailor the day around it. Um, mark out time on your counter, whether that's in the morning, whether that's at lunch, whether that's after you get off work. Um, and with that said, find people to do it with. Yeah. Absolutely. It takes a, a community takes sure. community it it makes it a lot more enjoyable and you know as, as we talk so much of, of this has been about the community and sharing the experience of running together is incredibly powerful so i highly recommend you contact your local running store find there's i mean facebook and twitter and social media is, is a great way to kind of find your local run i mean um, i know in my area there's like group runs like four nights a week at, from different places so you know it makes it it makes it fun um, it gives you, um, a new group of friends. Um, and it just, it makes life fun. So right on. Brandon Hudgens, be Hudge nasty. Yeah, that's P me. Bunny, P and bunny and I appreciate your being here, man. So, so well, thank you all guys for having me. Thanks yeah, so much. Th- thanks for stopping by. I always enjoy, uh, sharing time with you and seeing you at races and 
look forward to uh, seeing you in the mile tonight. I have a great few from the back watching you guys uh, duke it out. <laughs> I'll just, I'll just, li- I'll leave it at that. Good luck, man. Good luck. Good Thanks, week. guys. And that'll do it for another installment of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Thanks for joining us. You can find us on Twitter at Pleasant Podcast or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Pleasant Podcast. Don't forget to check out our sponsors too. You can find ITL Coaching and Performance at itlcoaching.com, at ITL Coaching on Twitter, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash ITL Coaching and Performance. And of course, our new sponsor, Blue Pineapple Travel, a full-service travel agency that can book travel anywhere in the world for you. They're on Facebook at facebook.com slash Travel, on Instagram at instagram.com slash Travel, or simply at bluepineappletravel.com. On behalf of Patrick Ollinger, this is George Darden. Thanks again for joining us on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. See you next time.